In God's most severe judgment toward his people, there is mercy. This is my friend, he who sweet grace, I hold my days to gladly Good morning. Good to be here with you all this morning. There are some Hollywood movies that kind of just flop when they cross the ocean over here. One example would be the recent Indiana Jones movie, Dial of Destiny. How many of you went to theaters to see that? Yeah, I mean, did you? Okay, we'll ask you later how it was. So, so that movie only made $2.3 million in China on its opening weekend. That's compared to the $60 million that it made in the U.S. in its opening weekend. One reason for the flop may simply be that the, the four previous Indiana Jones movies were never released in China. So there's, for most Chinese people, I would assume, there's, there's not this same nostalgia to see an 80-plus-year-old Harrison Ford with his lasso. But for a movie to get to its fifth installment, there should be something compelling about the first one, right? The first Indiana Jones movie was released back in 1981 and was titled Raiders of the Lost Ark. In that story, archaeologist and adventurer Indiana Jones is racing against the Nazis this is set right before World War II, to find the lost Ark of the Covenant before the Nazis find it. And the Nazis plan to use the Ark of the Covenant to dominate the world. They've heard that the Ark of the Covenant can destroy entire armies. So the Nazis would leave no stone unturned and no man alive who got in the way of their quest to find the Ark. Now we can stop right here and say that if the fictional Indiana Jones and the Nazis had first read and understood our Bible passage for today, they probably could have all just stayed home. Indiana Jones and the Nazis were not the first ones to have a wrong understanding of the Ark of the Covenant. The Israelites at the time of Samuel also had a very problematic understanding of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark is not some magic box that you can use to win battles. The Ark also is not an idol. The Ark cannot be made to get God to do what you want. And the God of the universe, we must remember, is not some genie in a bottle. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. Last time we were in 1 Samuel, we contrasted how God will bring down those who falsely stand for him, thinking of Eli's sons, and how he will bring up those who truly do stand for him and speak for him, thinking of Samuel. God will not be mocked. God will protect his people. God's mercy towards his people will be shown through judgment. And the time for judgment for Eli and his sons had come. This morning we'll work through our passage section by section. But before doing so, I'd like to give you a main point 
to consider as we read this passage. And that main point is this. In God's most severe judgment towards his people, there is mercy. In God's most severe judgment towards his people, there is mercy. If 1 Samuel 4 were itself a movie, it might be a movie in five scenes. And that's how we're going to split it up this morning. The first scene is a battle. Look at verses 1 and 2. This scene could be titled, A Warning. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. This chapter begins with a reference to Samuel, but these first few words seem to be more connected with the end of chapter 3. Samuel being established as a prophet brings to Israel the hope of having a good leader that speaks for God. I will stand in stark contrast to the sons of Eli. But God's prophecy against Eli and his sons had not yet been fulfilled. And so before we return to Samuel, the focus shifts to the story of the Ark of the Covenant in 1 Samuel 4. We don't know exactly what occasioned this particular battle between Israel and the Philistines. But this opening battle sets a scene for the rest of the chapter. We're given the locations where the Israelites and the Philistines encamped. And we're told the Israelites were defeated with about 4,000 Israelites killed on the battlefield. When it comes to wars in modern history, in most cases it would be quite foolish to say whose side God is on. In fact, God, God is likely not on either side. But for the Israelites battling against their enemies, this was part of God fulfilling his promises to give Israel their land. And so when Israel lost a battle, the problem wouldn't have been poor military tactics. The problem was quite probably the sin of the nation. Do you remember the story of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho? The Israelites march around the city of Jericho seven times. And seven times on the seventh day, as God commanded, and the walls come tumbling down. But while there are many children's storybooks that include Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, I can't think of any children's Bible storybooks that talk about the battle that happened right after the Battle of Jericho. That's the battle for Ai in Joshua chapter 7. Compared to the battle with Jericho, defeating Ai should, be, should have been easy. Fewer people, less fortified. But the men of Ai soundly defeated the Israelites and had the Israelites running. After this defeat, Joshua tore his clothes and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord tells Joshua that the reason that the Israelites were defeated was Israel's sin. The Israelites had transgressed the covenant by stealing from the defeat of Jericho, what was meant to be devoted to destruction. 
They had disobeyed God's word. After the man who stole this was punished by death for his sin, the Israelites could defeat Ai by God's power. God's punishment for disobedience in the Mosaic law included that the Israelites would be defeated by their enemies when they continued in sin against God. And so the loss of this first battle here in 1 Samuel 4 should have acted as a warning to Israel. There is sin in the land, so God is not fighting on their behalf. But sadly, as we'll see in the next scene, the leaders of Israel don't take this as a warning. They treat it more as a, as a riddle for themselves to solve. And so we come to the second scene. This scene zooms in on the Israelite battle camp. If I had to give this second scene a title, I might call it Very Human Responses. Here we find out what the Israelites do after their defeat in battle, and then how the Philistines react in response. So look with me at verses 3 to 9. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you became slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. The elders of Israel do get something right in verse 3. They ask the question, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? So the elders of Israel knew that God was responsible for their defeat. But, Instead of crying out in prayer to God, like Joshua did after the defeat of Ai, the elders of Israel try to come up with their own plan to, to make God give them victory. And so the elders send for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to come and to save them. So Ophni and Phinehas, the two priests, come with the Ark of the Covenant. Notice the grand title in verse 4 for the ark. It's the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. The top of the ark of the covenant was like, like a throne for God who would sit between these two angelic beings. It beautifully symbolized God's presence with his people. Hophni and Phinehas had no qualms about bringing the ark of the covenant to the battlefield. No hesitation about if this was right or wrong, they just did it. 
In verse 5, all of Israel gives a mighty shout when the Ark of the Covenant arrives into the battle camp. So can you imagine how excited the Israelites would have been to see the Ark of the Covenant and the sound of their shouting? They must have shouted louder than if tens of thousands of reinforcements came in because they thought for sure now we will win the battle. And the Israelites shouted so loud that the Philistines could hear. So if this were a movie, the, the camera would pan to the Philistine camp. And now the Philistines are asking one another, what's going on? And when they hear that the Ark of the Covenant has come, they're afraid. They've heard about God's plagues on Egypt. And while the Philistines were stronger than the Israelites when it came to military might, the idea of there being a god in the poison camp struck them with fear. So they thought, we have to have courage, we have to fight harder if we want to stand a chance against the Israelites and their god or gods. So both the Israelites and the Philistines had fatally flawed human responses. Consider how the Israelite response betrays a lack of understanding of who God is. What were the Israelites doing by bringing the Ark of the Covenant into battle? They were trying to ensure that they win the battle. They were trying to ensure that God would go with them. In other words, their attitude kind of was like, let's make it so God has to do what we want. One can picture the story of Aladdin and the genie in the bottle. The genie may be way more powerful than Aladdin, but as long as Aladdin has those three wishes, he's master over the genie. He gets to tell the genie what to do. And that seems to be basically how the Israelites were treating God. God had not commanded that his ark go into the battle. The Israelites thought that this would be a clever way to have God with them. Perhaps they thought, God, you have to, to make us win now because your honor is at stake. Everyone's going to know we brought the Ark of the Covenant in the battle, right? But who was supposed to be serving who? Were the Israelites actually serving God or, or just simply expecting God to, to serve them? So fast forward to today. Are we, are we guilty of this kind of thinking? How do you understand who God is? I was listening to a, a portion of a, a sermon by a pastor named Alistair Begg on this section of 1 Samuel, and he gave a few examples of ways that we might like to think of God. Sometimes we like to think of God as a, like a, kind of like a cheerleader. He isn't in the game. He's standing way on the sidelines, chanting encouraging things far, from far away so that when we need it, we have like a, a little boost of encouragement. Or sometimes we like to think of God like a waiter. When we need to put in another order, we shout for him to come. And we expect him to swing by and fill our glass with water. Or take away dirty plates. Or sometimes we like to think of God like a, a therapist. It makes us feel better to talk to him. So we want to lay on the couch and we want to tell him our problems. 
But the problems with each of these pictures is that we're putting ourselves in the center and making ourselves the focus. We're expecting God to serve us when and how we want him to. So this is the opposite of how we should be thinking. We were created to worship God. We were created to serve him. And yet, just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, we want to take God's throne from him. So let this be a warning even in thinking how we pray. I wonder if we ever think, I, oh, I prayed about this this morning. So God is going to make it awesome today. Now, he might. Or we might, on the other hand, we might think, oh, I forgot to pray this morning or today. So God is going to punish me and make me really miserable today. But both these ways of thinking kind of sound like we're treating prayer more like magic than actually making requests before a, a holy God who will answer in his wisdom. Because prayer isn't magic, is it? It's The point of prayer is, is not for us to automatically get what we prayed for. Because we should honestly pray for what we desire. We should persevere in prayer. But alongside that, we want to pray that our desires become more and more in line with, with God's desires. We must remember that ultimately we can trust God, that his will is best. His understanding infinitely exceeds our understanding. So instead of trying to make God do what we want, we must worship God for who he is and pray that what we want becomes more and more, what li- more, and more like what God wants for us. It's good to be reminded as well that God's mercy may be not to give you what you want, but to show you who he is. Imagine the middle schooler who didn't study for a big test, but still, right before the test, prays, God, you're still going to give me an A, right? Now, it's quite likely that God's mercy on that middle schooler involves not giving her an A, but having her test score most, more closely reflect the fact that she didn't study. And, and, and we can see the good in this, can't we, in the long run? We can see that even if this middle schooler already has a true faith in God, this student also needs to learn that there are consequences to not studying. If God magically gave this middle schooler an A every time she prayed, then what's going to happen when she gets to high school or college? And if this middle schooler only prays when she's about to fail a test, then consider what it is she believes about who God is. Yes, God wants to hear her prayers. But it could be time for this middle schooler to begin learning of Jesus' example of how to pray, including the words, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But this kind of magical thinking continues on as adults as well. One can consider how some of the, the claims of the false prosperity gospel may make it sound like if you do X or you pray Y, God will automatically give you Z. 
And so perhaps if someone is beginning to fall for prosperity theology and then faces financial trouble, that may be God's mercy towards that person. Mercy not in giving that person what they want, but in teaching that person that God has no interest in being your no-risk stock investor. We must remember that God is God, and we are not. So persist in prayer, persevere in prayer, but do it to praise and worship God. Do it in a way that's willing to submit to God's will. Do it understanding that God's wisdom is better than yours. And do it trusting that your Heavenly Father loves you and will work what's best for you, even in the hard times. Pray for wisdom, how to pray. Look to the examples of the prayers of godly men and women in the scriptures. The second response we see is the Philistines' response to what the Israelites had done in bringing the Ark of the Covenant into their battle camp. The Philistines, in opposition to God and his people, have the basic reaction of, let's fight God harder. Often in a key battle scene in a movie, there'll be a, a short speech, right, that pumps everybody up. We're going to win. Take courage, men. Fight. Now, this was the speech the Philistines were having. But they were under the same mistaken assumption that the Israelites were. They assumed that the true God, well, not the true God, they didn't really know who the true God was, but they assumed that God was going with the Ark of the Covenant into battle and would fight for Israel. And so they thought, oh, we have to fight God harder. But this response is also dead wrong. God's judgment for the non-Christian is that even if God lets you win in this life, you don't win in the end. It's been a, a privilege hearing several of your testimonies so far on Sunday evenings. And in hearing some of your testimonies, I can think of more than one of you who were quite successful in the eyes of the world before you became a Christian. Compared to many of your peers, you had a good job, you were enjoying life in the big city. Perhaps old acquaintances wanted to be like you. You appeared to be winning at the game of life. But something was still missing. The pleasures of this world were becoming more and more empty. And God showed mercy to you in showing you your sin. God showed mercy to you in showing you where your sin was leading. Perhaps you had tried to man up and fight against God many times before, but were finally realizing that you shouldn't be fighting God. God was breaking down your pride and calling you to himself. Some young non-Christians I've met think of Christianity as superstitious and point to how many people, perhaps older people back in their hometown, believed it when they were sick or in trouble. And perhaps there are times when sick people begin with a wrong understanding of who God is. But perhaps the problem is more with the healthy ones. Perhaps in someone's sickness, they have finally realized their own mortality. Perhaps in someone's sickness, they have finally realized that they're not God. 
perhaps in sickness, there came a humility that wouldn't have come otherwise. Whether it is in sickness or a sense of lack of purpose or a squandering of one's finances, these difficulties might just be God's hidden mercy. If God shows someone that fighting against him is futile, that's a merciful thing for God to do. And in chapters 5 and 6, God will mercifully show his great power against the Philistines. That brings us to our third scene. Now that the Israelites have the Ark of the Covenant with them, what might we expect from the upcoming battle? And so we look at verses 10 and 11. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So Israel's first defeat was nothing compared to this. At least with Israel's first defeat, they could still regroup and get ready for the next battle. Israel's second defeat, they lost 30,000 men. And every surviving man ran away from the battlefield, ran away home. So verse 10 calls it a slaughter. You almost shouldn't even call it a battle. The Philistines won so convincingly. And in addition to the fact that there's this overwhelming defeat of Israel, the Ark of God is captured by the Philistines. So this great symbol of God's presence is no longer in Israel. It's with the Philistines. And Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, die. They die on the same day, just as had been prophesied in chapter 3. From this short description of the battle, we can observe that God will not have his arm twisted by his people. You can't force God's hand. God will allow his Ark of the Covenant to fall into enemy hands in order to teach his people a lesson about who he is. And we see that God keeps his word, don't we? When there's a prophecy from God, it will come to pass. Hophni and Phinehas died on the same day, just as God had said. There's not a lot of further detail in this battle, but we see it's an overwhelming defeat for the people of Israel. The Israelites ignored God's warning in the first battle, tried to take matters into their own hands, and God responds by defeating them several times worse than the first time. And so we come to scenes four and five of our story. Scenes four and five are, are similar in that they are both after the battle, picturing what happens when those back at, at Shiloh hear about Israel's terrible loss. One can picture the camera starting at the line of battle and then following the young man of the tribe of Benjamin in verse 12 as he runs from the battle line to Shiloh to bring news. Scene 4 could be titled, Judgment That Brings More Judgment. 
Please look with me at verses 12 to 18. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli, now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the Ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. God does not only judge Hophni and Phinehas with death in this battle, he judges Eli as well. Verse 13 says that Eli's heart trembled for the ark of God. One can imagine that Eli probably did not want the ark of God to go into battle, but even if he told his sons that, it would be hard to imagine his sons listening to their father. And so Eli is waiting for news of the battle. He's helpless. He's blind. He's already 98 years old. The man comes to bring the news to Eli. Israel has been defeated. Eli's sons are dead, and the ark has been captured. Eli's death was not caused by the news of his sons dying, but by the news of the ark of God being captured. Perhaps Eli already had accepted the fact that his sons would be judged soon for their sins. But the ark of God being captured would have been something unimaginable for Eli. The shock of God apparently leaving his people behind was the death blow to Eli the priest. Notice the passage even mentions that Eli is heavy. That's part of why it was so easy for him to topple over and die. This seems to be hinting back to the roast meat that Eli and his sons were supposed to have offered to God. the meat that Eli partook of as well. Eli had judged Israel for a considerable length of time, but the time had come for his death. With both scenes four and five, I want to ask the question, where is God's mercy here? Here in Eli's death, can you see God's mercy? Now, it's not mercy shown towards Eli or his sons, but it's mercy shown towards the people of Israel. A God-fearing leader. Israel needed a God-fearing leader who could help Israel repent and turn back to God. Israel needed a God-fearing leader who could lead the people in making God-honoring decisions in wartime and in peacetime. It was time to remove Eli and his sons so that a faithful leader could judge Israel. And that faithful leader was Samuel, who he had been introduced to. 
Not only would Samuel act as a prophet, but Samuel would act as a judge. Samuel is a unique figure in the Old Testament. He, he doesn't neatly just fit into one role. He will act as God's prophet. He will act as God's priest. He will act as God's judge. God's judgment on Eli and his sons is God's mercy to Israel because it opens up the role for Samuel. And Samuel would faithfully urge God's people to worship God. If we think on today, it may be really painful at different times when we hear of another well-known Christian leader who is in sin that disqualifies him from leadership. But the fact that that sin is made public and he is removed from his leadership role is God's mercy to those that he leads. It may be sad to think on how this hurts the reputation and witness of Christians when another famous Christian leader falls into sin. It may be difficult for those who were once led by him, for example, if, if he was their pastor, to, to, trust another, to begin to trust another pastor. And yet what would be more dangerous for God's people would be for this particular leader to continue to lead while he is in this sin. In this passage, it seems that judgment just brings on more judgment. Eli's sons and Eli all die on the same day. But the beginnings of the end of the house of Eli makes way for a faithful priest to be raised up. The death of Eli the judge makes way for Samuel to be the faithful judge who would lead Israel well into Israel's next season of history. But the Bible does not only recount how Eli heard the news of the Ark of God being captured. It also recounts what happens when Eli's daughter-in-law heard this news. And so let's look at that as well. That brings us to scene five. Judgment bringing grief. Judgment bringing grief. Please look at me, with me at verses 19 to 21. Now, his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the Ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, do not be afraid, for you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. When the wife of Phineas hears the news, of the capture of the Ark of God. It's so shocking and grief-inducing that it causes her to go into labor. And when her son is born, there's no joy at seeing her son. Not mainly because of the death of her husband, but firstly because the Ark of God has left Israel. And so she names her child Ichabod, and explains the meaning of the name, saying the glory 
has departed from Israel. Twice this phrase is used in verses 21 and 22. The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured. One can imagine that Phineas's wife felt much more grief at the loss of the ark than her husband ever would. But neither she nor, nor Eli quite fully understood what really was going on. Because if we think about it, even though the ark of God went into battle, God did not go with Israel into battle. And so when the ark of the covenant leaves Israel, that does not necessarily mean that that was when God left Israel. Perhaps actually God had already left Israel. Even when the Ark of the Covenant was still in Shiloh, Eli, Israel had suffered defeat. But it would be good to remember that it wasn't God who first abandoned Israel. First, Israel had abandoned God. The priesthood and the elders of Israel had very little interest in worshiping the true God, how he should be worshipped. And so the Ark of the God of God leaving Israel was simply a visible picture of what had already happened. Israel had abandoned God. And God would allow Israel to stand far off from him before eventually bringing them back to repentance. And so we can ask again, where is God's mercy here? God's mercy is in giving God's people a wake-up call. Wake up. Wake up. Did God's people really want to do life without God? Did God's people really want to have the God of the universe against them? Were God's people really ready for the God of Israel to change residence? And one can imagine that in Israel there were still others, such as Phineas's wife, who grieved deeply at the loss of the Ark of God. God is merciful in disciplining his people and clearly showing them their sin so that they can come to repentance. God is merciful in demolishing the assumption that everything's going great when there's a corrupt priesthood and foolish elders leading the people of Israel. In God's discipline, he may seem far away, but he's actually just as much at work in the lives of his people as ever. He's calling them to repentance. Sometimes the natural consequences for our sin can be God's needed wake-up call for us. The natural consequences of our sin may be the wake-up call that we need to show us that God, to show us who God is. They are God's mercy towards us. So grief can be a good thing. Paul taught on this in his second letter to the Corinthians. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 to 10. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces 
death. And so as Christians today, we want this godly grief that leads us to repentance. We want to be saddened and sorrowful over our sin. And this is different than simply grieving about the consequences of our, of our sin. The consequences of our sin might wake us up to something. But godly grief needs to be at the center of causing us to truly repent. We should be confronted with the fact that we have sinned against the holy God. We must be grieved over our sin, and when that leads to repentance, that's a joyful thing. So instead of continuing on a, a sinful path to death, God brings us to repentance and we turn back to him. Godly grief is contrasted with worldly grief. There's a danger for us to be simply saddened in the same way that anyone else would be saddened. Saddened at a loss of reputation. Saddened that we failed someone else. Saddened at broken relationships. And these are sad things. But we ultimately must be saddened and grieved because we have sinned against a holy God. And so after David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah, he can pray in Psalm 51 to God, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Had he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah? Yes, definitely. But David's sin, first and foremost, was against God. And God brought about true godly grief in him, although he would still have to face the consequences of his sin for the rest of his life. And so God's judgment in bringing grief over our sin is a, a display of his mercy. It's also a reminder to repent before it's too late. If you have a situation in which you're deciding, trying to discern whether what you're experiencing is godly grief or worldly grief, I would encourage you to involve other members of our church in the process. We want to help one another repent when we are in sin, and, and sometimes we can be blind to our own sin. Similarly to how God used Nathan the prophet to confront David over his sin with Bathsheba, there are times when we need one another to confront us when we are in sin and to point us back to Jesus. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, my hope for you is that you begin to feel godly grief that you begin to not simply feel grief over your sins or unwanted consequences of sin, but you realize who you're sinning against and you feel grief over that. If you're here and you're not a Christian, the message that Jesus came proclaiming is a message that you need to hear. Repent and believe. Repent means to turn away from your sins and turn to God. Believing involves believing in who Jesus is and what he has done. Friends, Jesus died for you. And he rose again for the forgiveness of sins. The ultimate penalty of death and eternal punishment in hell that you should pay is the penalty that Jesus took for you at the cross. He took your place. So if you repent and believe, 
He is waiting and willing to forgive you. Talk to a, a member at WSBC today if you want to know more about the good news of what Jesus has done. It's a scary thing to put ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites and, and consider the frightening idea that God had left them. But brothers and sisters, we as Christians today can take encouragement in the fact that since we're in Jesus Christ, God will never leave us. Remember the angel's words to Mary, quoting Isaiah the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus came to this earth and lived with his people. And when Jesus went back up to heaven, he promised his disciples that he would send his spirit to live in them. And so today as Christians, God's spirit lives in us. God will not leave us. For the Christian, even if it feels like God is far away, we can be comforted because actually God's spirit lives in us. God's spirit convicts us of sin so that we can truly have godly grief. God's Spirit convicts us from God's Word so that we can have true understanding. God's Spirit helps us to pray when we don't know how to pray. What an amazing thing to consider what it means to be united with Christ. It's a theme that is all throughout the New Testament. Emmanuel, God with us. He is still with us today and will be with us forever. Well, we should conclude. In God's most severe judgment towards his people, there is mercy. God's judgment towards his people is discipline, meant to bring his people to repentance and continued faith and trust in our Savior. God's discipline is meant for our good, and we have the wonderful assurance that God's Spirit will not leave us. Praise God, for he is just. He is merciful. Praise God, for he dwells with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for you are just. You are merciful. You are good. And Father, we thank you for your spirit who lives in us. Lord, will we live by the power of your Spirit. Lord, when we sin, would we be quick to repent? Would you cause us grief over our sin that leads us to true repentance? And Father, would we help one another fight against their sins as well? Would we exhort? Would we rebuke? Would we encourage? Will we do so by the power of your Spirit? We thank you for being with us. In Jesus' name, amen.